Yes, go ahead. Sorry, Ann. My undersized 12-year-old grandson started three-hour a day football workouts yesterday. I want to pray for all of the kids, band, football, whatever, who are out in this heat for long times, and also for the adults working with them, for people who have to work outside, who have no choice, that they will be safe and that the people in charge will use wisdom. I keep thinking about the difference between men and women, all this stuff, because my attitude is, tough it out. You're playing football. I think I've told you our youngest, I probably shouldn't put this on air, um, click this part off, but Jonathan M's, the parents of those two plus seven, um, she's been really adamant about the boys playing football and they, they all play basketball, so they're, and Williams, um, freshman? Freshman? Sophomore this year? He'll play basketball, and he's right on a border between varsity, you know, it's just, it's, but, but she didn't want him to play football, which was not an easy thing for, and this last year she finally gave in, and so he played, he played football last year. I think two, two weeks into the season he got an injury too. It was a mild injury, but it was okay. It's okay. I will pray for them for sure. Any, anybody else? I just have a prayer for uh, gratitude, Thanksgiving. Um, the end of every July, my three sisters come over and spend the weekend with me, and my daughters got called. It was just a beautiful weekend. Oh, nice. I love that intergenerational support and love and listening and talking and so we were together Friday, Saturday, Sunday. My grandchildren, my oh, niece nice. from Dallas came, her daughter, and it was all of us women. It was great. No men? Well, my two little grandsons, they were two in six months. They were, didn't cause no trouble. Yeah. <laughs> That's not sexist, right, Mary? Your son wasn't there? Yeah. Hello, Keith. Yeah. Um, George, you have a friend, or you're going to enter? Is it Nori? Yeah. Nori, come on, stand up and introduce. Let's find. Did you do the whole thing? No, I did a mission for uh, the Archbishop of San Antonio, for El Camino, the San Antonio. And so um, there was nobody to find anyone. I said, I can do it. And I did it. And so I took, uh, the, we did the El Camino, some of you must have been. And um, I took those miles, and then I went to the Jacob Trail, and I opened it up for the we're the new world to the old world, and we connected. So uh, we had a big, big Spain welcome. Big. The bells are ringing more. I mean, my, wow. Sister, wow. my sister was two of us, and we, some of the lady from the uh, North Texas Pilgrimage, and she said, No, you take your time. I said, Oh, okay. She said, Smell the roses. So we <laughs> Okay. 
no, it was okay. Yeah, but great. When we got there and we went, it was just logistics were waiting for us. That's why I kind of missed a lot because I was fixing my backpack and doing a bunch of stuff. But it was a beautiful, I mean, they gave us the medallions. They gave us, I mean, we got a private tour from the Archbishop. They gave us gifts for our backpack, but we didn't come home. They gave us uh, gifts for the Archbishop, you know, Gustavo, and the Sunday So, I, you know, he got a coin and a, a pretty letter in Latin. And then we, uh, everything for us was, you know, we were VIPs, you know, going through. And they weren't going to do that kind of thing. And when they did, I, I, I at first I said, it's, 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 you know, what do y'all you know, I'm like, oh, it's a little bit. She said, well, we can get that ready for you tonight. And I'm like, oh, my sister goes to sleep early. Well, I'm home, we won't come from mass, I know. That's what we're wearing right now. And then she said, okay, well, what, let me see. And so she went over there and then she can make sure they work. Just for you, we're going to do it. Wow, all of it sounds great. I mean, yeah. it's beautiful. Yeah. So that was, uh, so we opened and it's open, and today Florida is jumping on board. And they're not fully as good as Texas. Yeah. They're, you know, and so um, we see California hopefully will jump on board and we'll welcome it. That may take some time with <laughs> California, but anyway, good. Okay. Um, Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, um, amen. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life um, this day, for your presence with us, and for our gathering again, for the dedication of this group. Um, in so many scenes in Scripture, we see you um, taking away a blindness, healing blind people, and I've said it before, I, I think generally we think we read well, but we can certainly get, or we don't read well, we can get better at it. And we think because we're, we don't need glasses or we're not blind that um, we don't need any healing um, for our eyes. But um, every work we've read hopefully has taught us, helped us to see more deeply. I think that's going to be especially true with Dostoevsky. Um, He's on the edge of the modern world where we are, so everything that he writes speaks to us. Um, so we're grateful um, to gather again um, to receive what another great poet has to give us, hopefully to deepen our sight and be more capable of understanding the dangers we face and offer answers to them that we can use our powers of reason and faith um, to hold off so many of the dark things going on in our world. So, um, I want to offer a prayer for <laughs> all the kids in Texas, and um, particularly those who are playing football. Um, at least one of the disadvantages there is if they're playing football, they're wearing pads, and, and so it's a heavy uniform, and it's warm, and um, I'm assuming they know what they're doing or they wouldn't be doing this, but watch over them, keep them safe, keep the parents, the older people who are helping safe, and um, surround the kids with your protection. Injuries happen. Um, they're a part of growing up. Um, so watch over them and um, keep them well. I'm not forgetting anybody here. That was it tonight, right? Um, I ask for a special prayer for our, um, oh, for Mary, 
of gratitude, thanksgiving. Um, how wonderful that sounded. I mean, oftentimes when families get together, it's not always easy. Um, but um, for the joy that all of them present shared, um, all of us offer a thanksgiving, um, particularly for Mary. Let her heart quiet, um, continue to be strengthened. Um, her faith is already strong. Um, the faith of each of us can be strengthened still. So um, we offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay. Um, you know that um, we're going to stay with Shakespeare for a while. And um, the, re the reason for doing this will become more apparent as we get to the end. Um, so everybody be patient. I've said before that this is a part of a large sonnet cycle. Um, the source for Shakespeare was Petrarch, the Italian poet, who wrote a long sonnet cycle um, um, for his beloved Laura. And Shakespeare's counting on that. It's um, and, and let me make a note here for everybody. You know that. Um, I think by now that one of the differences between the sciences and literature is this, that the sciences are residual. They, they work off of a text that doesn't get carried forward. So Newton and Galileo were replaced by Einstein and, and Heisenberg and other modern scientists. So there's not a, it's not like a text that's there. It's a body of knowledge that's carried forward um, that's more immediately present in any new discovery. So somebody like Einstein um, with his theories would replace theories that came before him. So in the sciences we tend to leave things behind. So Ptolemy was left behind with Copernicus, right? It was a earth-centered um, universe for Ptolemy. Um, one of the major changes that set the modern world in motion in the 16th century was Copernicus because he, he made clear that the earth was not the center of the universe, the sun was. Um, and the earth took its place among the planets. So before the earth was at the center of the universe and people thought of it as a place of dying. It was mutable, it changed, death took place. In the planets, because they were permanent, there was an understanding that we could have knowledge. And you know in the ancient world um, that permanence was expressed in terms of the gods. Each one of the planets was the ha inhab or habitation of a god. Mars, Jupiter. So people looked at those planets with a sense that those things were eternal and unchanging. With Copernicus and the earth taking place is one of the planets suddenly, because it shifted from the center out, People looked at the earth as if there was something permanent about it and we could have knowledge now about the earth and the knowledge could be permanent, eternal, formal, just the way it was with the Greeks, with the gods. Um, so with the sciences, we tend, the, the sciences tend to move forward by leaving the past behind. You know that that's not so for literature. Homer's is much present today when somebody reads Joyce's Ulysses say, if, if they've read Ulysses and they've not read Homer, they will not understand Ulysses. Um, and in some ways you can say if you've not read lots of things, you understand Shakespeare or 
because what happens with literature is the whole tradition gets carried forward what Eliot called a simultaneous body of knowledge all texts exist together forming a body and we know that seeing one text um, um, we see it in terms of another other texts will shed a light on it um, see if I can give an example um, Well, you know that, um, I'm, I'm not sure that you would feel it right now, but you know that so many of the characters in Brothers make references to works of literature. Repeatedly, they refer to Shakespeare or Dante or... So we know that Dostoevsky's own vision in Brothers was shaped by his reading of other poets. And one of the advantages of literature is that we can take a work like Brothers and set it next to another work like Moby Dick or Scarlet Letter. And certain truths emerge. I've already spoken to some of them. Um, Dostoevsky's storytelling is much more down to earth than Melville. And we can say that now because we've read Melville. Um, we know that there's an allegorical aspect to Melville, that the, there are the captains and the mates and the harpooners and the men. That's conscious on Melville's part because he had an, a black-white allegorical way of looking at things. He was emerging from it from his Protestant background. Dostoevsky doesn't see things like that. When we read Dostoevsky, we feel that we're a part of a vast world. There's not an aspect of Russia. We don't know about peasants, the military, the government, the superstructure of the government, the nobility. Um, we can't, Grigory was a peasant. Um, some of the people in marriages are, are part of a landed aristocratic class. So we know in reading um, Dostoevsky, we're reading about all of Russia in a way that we would not have felt when we were reading Melville. Okay? So when we read literature, we tend to see a work of literature in light of other works. So the meaning of that work isn't contained just in that work, we see it a greater wholeness because we read it in the context of a tradition. That's what we've been doing all along. In fact, I can remember in some of the early talks I said, reading literature for us as Catholics should be natural. Because for a Catholic, we, we are raised on a tradition. The Protestants aren't, they pass that tradition away. It's your experience of the text now. We carry traditions forward and, and I made the argument early on that Catholics are failing in some ways because they can't carry the tradition forward. They don't even know it. Um, and I'm assuming everybody's still here partly because you feel like you're inheriting your world and in some sense you're growing into the wholeness of Christ because he carried that whole in him. There wasn't anything about our past, anything about any nature he did not know, that he did not carry within him. So to grow into this fullness is in some ways to participate more fully in the fullness of Christ. Okay. Um, so one of the things that will, will become clear as we move through the, the brothers is what I'm doing with Shakespeare. Um, and it's too early, but um, I'm going to make the argument when we get to the end that something's going on in the West that never fully entered the East. Dostoevsky is one of the most extraordinary writers in the modern world. Um, but there are certain qualities that make clear a difference between what he does with a story and what Western writers would do. 
And so it's one of the reasons I'm reading Shakespeare to help make that clear as we go along. We read Sonnet 65 last time, 73 tonight. Remember, it's a Shakespearean sonnet. There's four quartets. Behold, hang, cold, sang, day, west, away, A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, E, F, E, F, G, G, a conclusion. Three quatrains followed by a conclusion. What Shakespeare makes clear is the presence of being. He could not take three discrete, distinct episodes and show that they're related unless there was some underlying link. That link is being. It's a philosophic stance towards the world. We can make, we can, we can go to universals, we can make a generalization, describe a universal, because there are more than particulars, okay? So every sonnet takes us to the world as it is to our senses, exactly the way we see things in our senses, but it, we, can, we can arrive at a conclusion, a generalization. We can, make, we can go to a universal because of what the mind can do with particular things. Is that clear? That's absolutely crucial that the mind can grasp universals. So he shows us things that are available to the senses, one, two, three, the three quatrains, and then shows us how capable the mind is of arriving at a universal. We're not just stuck in our senses, okay? Sonnet 73. Karen, yeah. Say that again. The three quatrains and then the couple. Right. Is, is that what composes a sonnet? Yes. The Shakespeare sonnets. No. Remember, all Shakespeare sonnets take that form. That's peculiar to him. Remember the Italian sonnet, the, the sonnet form that Hopkins uses. We've read a number of his sonnets. But the wind hovers, the most important. We read a number of them. Remember, for Hopkins, there's an octave two quatrains, but form an octave, eight lines. With that octave, he will, he will present an experience available to our senses. So he'll, show the, he'll describe the wind hover. Um, God, I, boy, this is... What's the beginning of the wind hover? Do you have it there, Doc? The wind hover? This is embarrassing. Go ahead. Huh? Say Oh, I saw this morning, morning's minion, minion of daylight, Dauphin. You know, in, so he's describing the Dauphin, the, the wind hover, sailing through the sky and describing it in all of its beauty. And then it, uh, it reaches that moment where it buckles. It holds the wind, it stops. And in that moment, he's, he's seeing a connection between what happens with the wind hover and the crucifixion that all of those powers in that bird are gathered together at the moment when he masters the air and then buckles. That's a concrete image of, of Christ in the crucifixion when he took all of our nature and our sins to the cross and radically changed for them, transformed them by dying. So in that moment he buckles, God buckles on the, on the cross. And out of that buckling is this great light, this extraordinary beauty. So in the, in the Italian sonnet form, which, which goes back to Petrarch in that age, um, the Italians, um, the form is an octave, eight lines, which um, give us the representation of something to our senses, and then a sestet, six lines. 
um, in which the poet reflects on that moment. So is everybody seeing the parallel? A, a world is described that's available to our senses, but then we watch the mind work on whatever the senses deliver to us and arrive at a universal. So in one sense, they're both doing exactly the same thing, different form. In Shakespeare, it's three quatrains and a couplet. In Hopkins, it's um, George. Can you get that? I, she's trying to get in. Um, so it's Karen. Did that answer your question? Um, yes. Okay. Right. Right. Sonnet seventy-three. <clears throat> and remember, because we're getting so far away from this, one of my reasons for starting every class with a lyric, hold on to this, remember in literature there are three genres, lyric, narrative, drama. My contention, I don't want to go into this right now, is the source, I think I've said this to you guys, but, um, thanks Doc. Um, this is going to be outrageous to some of you and I don't want to go into it, but um, in the lyric, the poet speaks in his own voice, um, describing something that takes us into his interior, what he feels about something. He's speaking in his own voice, and we enter his interior. So the, the voice of the lyric is, I am, I am. In a narrative, the narrative voice is speaking in his own voice, but he's speaking about other people, Achilles, um, Ahab, Theodor Kermaza, right? So we're getting the world as it's present, but through a mediator, a narrator. We, it only comes to us through him, right? In drama, there's no narrator. Every character speaks in his own voice. Hamlet, Polonius, right? They're all speaking in their own voices. I'm gonna sh share this with you. I, I, it's in a book that I've written. I hope I get it published one day, but. My contention is that those three voices have as their origins the three persons of the Trinity. Anybody want to make a stab here? The lyric, the narrative, and drama? Anybody want to jump on this? Come on, Connie. Well, has to be God the Father because I am. I am. Good girl. And? Something comes into being through the Father. Narrative. Right? I mean, the Father, he's, a, he's an image of them, but he's something other. And in drama, the characters are speaking in themselves. If you look at, I mean, the Holy Spirit is, he's the one who always makes something possible by, by making himself invisible. That's the nature of the Holy Spirit. So I don't want to go into that. It's, it's not where I want to go, but I want to say... One of the reasons for beginning every course with the lyric is that I want everybody to remember that the center of literature is music. It's musical, it's an ordering, it's a beauty. But the whole point of literature is to bring this thing into beauty to continue creation. And it's always done through those three voices. And the one that's most obviously musical is the lyric. Right, because the narrative is much longer, it's extended in time, right? So. Don't forget that. I'm, the reason for doing this is, is to keep everybody remembering 
that the center of art is music. It's an ordering, a beauty, through these three different voices, okay? So, Sonnet 73, who's speaking? That time of year thou mayest in me behold. He's talking about his own feelings towards the beloved, all right? So what he feels about the woman he loves. Sonnet 73. And at a time when he's approaching death. So all of us reach a point where we feel our age and we feel especially grateful for something we're about to lose. That's been a common theme of literature. Dostoevsky's writing that novel because the world in which, about which he's writing is about to disappear. It's going to be radically changed. So um, very often our love is deepest when we're about to lose something we love. Sonnet 73. The time of year thou mayest in me behold when yellow leaves or none or few do hang upon those boughs which shake against the cold bare rune choirs where late the sweet birds sang. In me thou seest the twilight of such day as after sunset fadeth in the west which by and by black night doth take away death's second self that seals up all in rest. In me thou seest the glowing of such fire that on the ashes of his youth doth lie as the deathbed whereon it must expire consumed with that which it was nourished by. This thou perceivest which makes thy love more strong to love that well which thou must leave ere long. Is everybody clear? First quatrain is nature, right? Winter's coming, the trees are bare, right? It's winter, things are dying. The second quatrain, thou seest the twilight of the day is going out, the sun's setting, right? The night's coming, the day's being replaced. The third quatrain, in thou in me thou seest the glowing of fires going out. Right? Is everybody following? So three different instances of something dying out. Completely different. But they're all related then by that couplet at the end. Okay? I'll read it once more. A time of year thou mayest in me behold when yellow leaves or none or few do hang upon those boughs which shake against the cold bare rune choirs where late the sweet birds sang. In me thou seest the twilight of such day as after sunset fadeth in the west which by and by black night doth take away death's second self that seals up all in rest. Sleep is like a dying. Right? We, lose, we go to sleep. It's, it's death's second self. In me thou seest the glowing of such fire that on the ashes of his youth doth lie as the deathbed whereon it must expire consumed with that which it was nourished by. This thou perceivest, which makes thy love more strong, to love that well which thou must leave ere long. I wasn't planning to do this, but since Doc did this, I'm going to read the wind over. Just hold on. Okay? You don't look for it. Just listen. It's an octave. He's describing an experience. Something that happened that morning. So he's setting it out. And then he reflects on it. And watch the similarities between this and Shakespeare. Because there's no question that Hopkins became a greater poet because he read Shakespeare. He knew him, okay? The Wind Tugger. <coughs> We've read this several times. You know it's 
one of my all-time favorites. He's going to describe the bird and then he's going to um, compare it to a farmer working the earth. So the, the earth is all clay and sticky and muddy, but the more he works it, the more it shines. It's like a light emanating. It's, so it's, it's like the light in, in, um, in uh, Genesis before the sun and the moon. There's this light. And then he creates the sun and the moon and, you know, and we can see light coming out of things. The wind hover. I caught this morning, morning's minion, kingdom of daylights, dauphin, dappled dawn, drawn falcon, in his riding to the rolling level underneath him, steady air, and striding high there, how he rung upon the rein of a wimpling wing in his ecstasy, then off, off, forth on swing, as a skate's heel sweeps smooth on a bow bend. The hurl and gliding rebuffed the big wind. My heart in hiding stirred for a bird, the achieve of the mastery of the thing. He's watching this thing in all of its glory, and then suddenly it's going to buckle. And watch what he does in line, because you know lines usually pause at the end. Watch how he goes over and stops on that first foot. Through beauty and valor and act, O air, pride, plume, here, buckle. And the fire that breaks from thee then a billion times told lovelier, more dangerous, O my chevalier. No wonder of it. No wonder. No wonder of it. That's the first thing that took hold of my, it's one of the lines that took my life into poetry. There's no wonder of it. It's all around us. Do we see it? Um, and the fire that breaks from thee then a billion times told lovelier, more dangerous, oh my chevalier, no wonder of it. Sheer plod makes plowed down cillion shine. That's what a farmer does. And blue bleak embers in a fire going out, and blue bleak embers on my dear fall, gall themselves and gash gold vermilion. Exactly when that fire goes out and the embers are gashing against themselves, and that sort of violent action, it produces this extraordinary vermilion beauty. So the two poets are looking at nature and finding something amazing there. You know? Okay? Any comments or questions before we start Dostoevsky? Karen, did that answer your... Are you there? Uh, it's an Italian sonnet. There are different forms of sonnets. You know, sonnets can take different forms. There's other forms beside these. Um, but these are the dominant forms, and these are the ones that two of the greatest poets happen to use, Shakespeare and Hopkins. So we, this isn't a poetry class, so we're not going to do sonnets. But, but, but I keep getting in people like Shakespeare and Hopkins because they're so extraordinary in what they do. Okay? Any comments before? Okay, I'll start. Okay. What do with this? Um, you've all got my notes. These are pretty extensive notes, the ones that I gave you this time. I'm loading up now to get the background here so that we can appreciate what he's doing. Um, you know 
from the opening um, scenes that the major concern as it's presented the opening in the discussion among the men at the monastery are two different understandings of justice and punishment. Ivan has taken the position that the church should absorb the state and until it does, um, criminals will not be um, converted, changed. And Miusov is horrified at that idea because he's a secular rationalist, we know that, he's a, he's a product of that European world, and he's, he's horrified. He says that's an example of ultramontanism. It's um, the church claiming too much power for itself. Um, and he argues that the church or the, should be absorbed by the state, that the state should have all that power. So the two men debate that question, and we know that it's crucial because at this time, in Dostoevsky, we, we already know this, that in 1848, Europe was torn, every state, every nation was torn by wars. Almost every nation in Europe um, was fighting a war in which modern liberal-minded um, people were arguing that the treatment of the peasants was unjust, that the monarchies were bad, that they should be overthrown and replaced by democ Republican democracies. America had already had its revolution, 18th century, 1776. The French had its, but the, those ideas were beginning to move throughout Europe and, and they were affecting every nation. Um, Russia was no exception. So one of the great battles at that time was the battle between church and state. Now we know from Dante, if you just go back for a minute, if you look at the opening of my notes, you'll see that that was one of the greatest issues for Dante because remember, those republican, those republics, Florence, Venice, um, all of them, were new republics. They were, they were the first examples of commercial republics. And they were states that didn't owe their allegiance either to the pope or to the state. And you remember that um, parties supporting each side, the emperor or the pope, were killing each other. Is everybody remembering that? So that was, that was already the major issue confronting Donnie. And when we went over it, we had, I gave you that thumbnail sketch. I included it in your email today. I didn't want to ask Ellie to copy it again because you should have copies. Go back in your notes. If you don't, you have it on email. You can print it off. It's very short. It's just a two-page summary on church-state struggles. But you know that one of the things that, in a sense, Dante was celebrating and, and that the modern world was looking forward to is the emergence of an independent entity, these republican, these democratic republics. So they didn't know their allegiance to an emperor which controlled them all, or a pope which controlled them all. They were independent. So people were put in a position of being able to have their destiny in their own hands. They weren't, they weren't feudal. They didn't owe their lives to a lord. Um, they weren't under the pope and kept in a servile position. Each person was in a position where he could improve his own life by risking. The very first play we read together, if you remember, was what? Merchant of Venice. And if you remember, I mean, the, the, the great push in that for me was the reason we started there is because I wanted to start with us in the modern world. 
And Shakespeare had two plays on the modern commercial republic. One was Merchant of Venice and the other was Othello. He gave us the tragic comic aspects of the modern commercial world. That's where we started as a group. And then we went back. Um, so look at the beginning on my notes and you'll see just a slew of examples in which um, state church conflicts were at issue here. Charlemagne crowned um, the Pope, which seemed to make the state superior to the church. Um, kings um, deposed popes. They locked them up at times. One of the most important conflicts in the Middle Ages was the investiture conflict because the kings wanted the rights to invest pope or I mean um, bishops and priests because by doing that the bishops and priests would owe their allegiance to them. They had control over them. So when the pope would say you cannot tax priests because they're under a, a different rule and they owe their allegiance to the pope, there were fights. So the, 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 Middle e, the Middle Ages was a period in which um, the state and church were, um, what's the word, sorting themselves out, separating themselves out to claim their separate authorities. If you go back to that thumbnail sketch I gave you, it begins with an early pope saying, following Christ, following Christ, an earlier pope saying, two there are, two powers, one Caesar, the other the Pope. Two swords, two different authorities. One was over the temporal order, the other was over the church, the, the spiritual order. Two separate distinct powers. And all of medieval history, or most of medieval history is a battle in which those two powers are leaning to separate themselves out and find out what their authorities are. Dante's uh, divine, divine Comedy, as a sense, is a look back and a look forward to the modern commercial regime. Remember we saw, the mod what, what are the driving principles of the modern commercial republic? Do you remember? Trying to get ahead. Pride and envy. The two major sins, pride and envy. I want to be better, I want to get ahead, I want to be better than other people. I want something because I don't have it and he does. And what did people do on the basis of those two powers? Kill each other. So Dante is very clear in the commercial regime. We, we did that, okay? Dostoevsky is looking at a Russia when Russia is facing a similar threshold. It's a major change in the history of Russia, okay? So there's a long list of um, conflicts. And remember, um, remember when we read The Wreck of the Dutchland, 19th century, remember Hopkins? was um, lamenting the death of those five nuns because the German king had, um, had um, what's the word, got him losing it. He'd taken possession of the church properties and exiled Catholics. And it was because they were forced to exile that they were killed in that voyage. He was lamenting an injustice. That was 19th century, okay? Henry, just so, so the popes are often claiming power that they don't have through the Middle Ages, and the emperors are claiming power they don't have. When Henry VIII didn't get his way with the Catholic Church, um, remember, he claimed absolute authority over matters of doctrine. So he made himself, in a sense, higher than the Pope. And you know, he, he forbid Catholic worships, 
Catholic priests went underground. Um, the Puritans, the Puritans and the Catholics fled, and it was the Puritan exile that led to their going to the north, um, to the north, the northern world, and finally to America. So America came out of that conflict. So that struggle continues in lots of ways today. Um, now, one of the one of the themes that I've said. Um, remember, um, if you look at the back, these were the notes I gave you last time. Um, two major critics on the structure, the nature of the modern novel. One is um, by George Lucas who says this, the novel is the epic of a world that has been abandoned by God. Looking back to the epic, Lucas says, that it's the very lucidity of its form that is a, its sign of a world of chaos, confusion of violence. Go back to the Iliad. The Iliad is aesthetically perfect. It's written in hexameter lines, eight, eight feet, eight beats per line. It's, it's, art, its artistry is impeccable, it's just amazing. And he's saying that it's the, it's the impeccable beauty, the clarity of its form, that makes it stand out because it's dealing with a world that's in chaos and formless. Everything's in chaos. If, if you read, in fact, you know that. If you read the Iliad, I'm, it's always a laugh for me to, when people start it. You know that after we're 10 pages into the, into the epic, Homer spends 100 pages describing the death of 500 people and he describes every one of them in detail. We go from killing to killing to killing to killing and, and, he, and he never describes a fight scene without naming the people. So it's not like, I don't want to hear any complaints about holding on to Russian names here. Go through the Iliad if you want to struggle with names because you've got 10 different names on every page. But the point he's making is that the world is in chaos. It's in constant turmoil and violence. And the epic is bringing an order out of it, showing an order. And we know from our reading of the epic that that order reflects a logos. A divine order. That's what the Logos is. That concept comes into existence with the Greeks. So it's only because there's a Logos that the epic can be written, an order can be brought to it. Another way of putting this is the Logos present in nature. I want to come to that because I don't want to miss this. The Logos is present in nature. It's there. It's only by virtue of that Logos that some curb can be put on violence. Take the Logos away, there's no answer to violence. That, that war in the Iliad has been going on for nine and a half years. Remember, it's all about a man's honor, getting things, booty. It, it, it's, you could say that um, Ivan's argument is that um, if there's no God, people are just going to kill each other. That's what's going on in the Iliad. It's only because Achilles steps out of that and he comes to a point of realizing that honor does not depend on your wealth, your acquisitions. The whole war is being fought because they want to acquire, it's been going on because they want to get booty. Women, arms, it's exactly what America is doing today. I made that case from the beginning. But the desire for acquisition, for power and wealth and control is as strong today as it was 3,000 years ago. So Lucas is saying that the, that the novel is replacing the epic and it presents us with a world without God. So the form of it is its nature, okay? 
There's no God, it's just, it's open-ended. So it tends to show a world in which things just go on. Um, there's no conform. In the, in the ancient epic, we look back to a world that was already done and closed off. Achilles had already died, the epic's being told. Odysseus had already died. It looks back to a heroic world that was already completed. It's idealized, it's present in the epic. In the modern novel, we're in the world as it is. There's no God, the events take place randomly as they do. So the novelist is the only one who brings order once again to a violent, chaotic world. Okay? Now here's where things get strange. So the novel, the word means new. It comes into existence about the 16th century. Don Quixote, 16th century. Robinson Crusoe, Defoe, 17th century, early 17th century. The novel comes into existence then. It's a break from the epic. And, and catch this, this is really interesting. Um, what's Robinson Crusoe about? It's about a refounding. It's a shipwreck, it's gone. Crusoe has to learn to, he has to, he has to his first impulse is self-preservation. He has to be able to make a world on his own. You can take that as um, a prototype, an archetype of the modern, the philosophy behind the modern world. What drives us all is self-preservation. The epic's gone, the ship is gone, he's on an island, he has to survive. So in one sense, it's a perfect symbol of the change that's taken place. The epic belongs to another world, we've entered the modern world. The epic is more empirical, it's more scientific, it's more practical. We are in our world as we know it today. Okay? Is everybody following? Except suddenly, and here, the epic's gone, the great subject of all 19th century novels is respectability. Every, Jane Austen, Dickens, go where you will. There's something wrong with respectability. Every novel is a critique of English, French, Spanish, respect, whatever, that respectable world. Because there are no more fine lens. God's gone. The, the, the standard by which people judge each other is respectability, not holiness. Catholic Church is gone. It's a Protestant world. Um, so every one of those novels is a critique in one way of respect, the hypocrisy of people who are pretending to be respectable. What's the great theme of um, Moby Dick? Hawthorne? All the people in, in New England are respectable Protestant Christians. And Melville shows that they're all hypocritical. There's some, they're failing. You can say the same thing about Hawthorne, that all these all these Protestants are living respectable Christian lives. And they're all pointing fingers at Hester and they don't know how hypocritical they are. Is everybody following? The great theme running across 19th century is we've created a world in terms of respectability and there's something wrong with it. Suddenly this Russian comes into this world and he's not just looking at respectability because that's a focus for him. He's showing that there are demonic presences. There are levels of evil at work in what's going on that no other 19th century novelist shows us. Not Dickens, certainly not Jane Austen. And there will be levels of graces. What, um, what um, Zosimov does, his influence in the book you already know is extraordinary. 
So there are degrees of holiness because we go into a religious order and we see a man devoting his life to Christ and we see the demonic. Yvonne's going to actually, I don't want to give things away, but he's going he's to reach a point of near madness. And there's going to be a couple of scenes in which we see him talking with a demon, with the devil. And I've already told you, he wrote that book called Demons. It was the last novel he wrote before um, Brothers Karamazov, and Brother Karamazov was his last novel. So Dostoevsky has a sense of the demonic, of evil in the world that no other 19th century writer has, and few, few moderns. So in Dostoevsky, we're going to a depth and a breadth of evil and graces that no other writer has gotten to. So he's showing us ourselves, but taking us to depths no other writer has. So Lucas describes the novel in a way. Bakhtin, who was a Russian um, linguist and philosopher, he said that up till Bakhtin, the major linguist in the world was a man named Saucier, who said that um, language, here, here it is, language, like all the Marx, Freud, here's another rationalist who's saying that language can be systemized. We can understand it as a system. It's a spoken language and you can understand it by its differences. That's it. Bakhtin came along and he said, it's not that our ultimate source is um, or, broken, sorry, broke, written language. What he, what he called uh, lingua, lingua, language linguistics. Bakhtin said that all language is a matter of parole, speaking. That the fundamental um, act at issue in all writing was speech. That's behind all writing. And that every, every speech act entailed another. That by its very nature it was dialectic. So every speech act that a person made in, assumed another, a dialogue, it anticipated a response and may, maybe even offered an answer. So for example, if you look at Jane Austen, you know that Jane Austen, anybody who's read her, you know that her great concern is the marriageability of women. You know, what, it's a truth universally known that a woman, a woman in want of a, yeah, oh, yeah, something like that. You yeah, that, that because men were the bread earners that most women look forward to marrying a guy who could support her. So her concern in everyone in her novels is how marriageable a, a woman is in the circumstance. I'm not a feminist, and not even close, and, and I, I don't think the feminists get her right. You can't read her without seeing that she's not just concerned about that. Economics is not, not the concern for her. She's concerned about the inner characters of men and women when they come together. Elizabeth in Pride and Prejudice. Elizabeth is far too proud. So is Darcy. Both of them have conversion moments. And the marriage that they come to at the end is only possible because they've been humbled. So her, her part of the greatness of her as a writer is that she goes into that domestic life and shows us our interior life, our, our pride in what it does. Dickens' great concern was an industrial age and its effects on poor, particularly kids. You know, it was going into workhouses. 
So every one of this Dickens novel is assumes an audience. So Bakhtin says every writer has a hidden polemic, a stance, and he's writing, okay? And that there are multiple levels to that stance, many voices. And he said the one who is consummate at distancing himself from the world and letting the world stand on its own was Dostoevsky. Because in Dostoevsky it's as if, so you can imagine a writer writing a novel and making every one of his characters um, do something that will work out to what he wants it to be. You know, if he believes in a utopia, he will, he will create a plot that will show all the people moving towards a utopia, whether they want to or not. He says that in Dostoevsky, it's open-ended, it's in the present. He's standing in the presence of characters who are speaking in their own voices, he's not directing them. All of them have their own ideologies. Miasis is very different from Ivan's or Sosima's. They're all speaking in their own voices. They're engaged in a dialectic, and the novel itself is engaged in a dialectic with its readers. Okay? Um, so when we enter Dostoevsky's world, we're entering a world, and here's, here's where I want to go. So while we're in the world, like the Iliad, it all seems chaotic. You can't hold on to all the names, and there's hundreds of characters to try to hold on to. There's a lot of characters. Um, it gets really confusing at times, I'm assuming. So he's dropping us into the world the way it is, that seems to be random, chaotic, confusing, non-directed. Um, at the same time, we know that we've been dropped into mysteries. That there's a mystery, that something's going on, that we're leading to an action, and something's going to come out of that action. What it is, we don't know. And one of the great things about Dostoevsky is this, and this is where I want to go, this is where I want to start when I get into the book right now. It seems to be one of the most important ways to read Brothers Karamazov is as a detective story. And I want everybody, to, it sounds silly. It's not Agatha Christie, you know, it's not a, he's not a detective writer. There's, and he got this from Dickens. There's no way you can write, read this without wondering, what are all these things leading to? And finally, and I'm gonna give it away here, if you know, um, old Karamazov is killed, murdered. And at that point, we're left with this mystery. Who killed Fyodor Karamazov? Who's the murderer? And are anybody, is anybody complicit in that murder? How do all these things fit? Because when we're going through the novel, it all seems confusing and random, people going in different directions. And yet, there's a skeleton. Dimitri is the skeleton of this thing. Everything hinges on him. Everything at the beginning has to do with his wanting money from his dad, that he's going to kill him if he doesn't get it. Um, it's that violent. And at one point, the old man is killed. And you know, if you've read, if you're up there yet, you know that Dimitri is charged with murder. And the last third of the novel will have to do with the trial of Demetrius, whether he's innocent and guilty. I don't want to go there yet, but I've suggested this, go back and reread Merchant of Venice. Because the, the event that was central to the action of that story was the trial involving Antonio and Shylock. <coughs> this book is heading towards a, a trial. Will he be convicted or let off? Um, will, every, will everybody understand the complexity of the motives of, 
you know, driving character in this, dri driving characters in this? Will anybody understand Dimitri as he is? You know, and what's going on? So everything in the beginning is setting up for that. We're getting Grushenka's motives, Katrina's motives, Smirjikov's motives, Grigory's motives. You know, they're all doing different things for different reasons. Dostoevsky is laying bare a whole Russian soul. Every, everybody's involved in this act, okay? Now I'm going to go out on a limb here and then I want to get into the book really quickly. If I were to venture a description of the action, you know how important that is, the plot, the action. What, what, what unifies this confusion? What's at the center of this confusing novel? I almost don't want to go there because it, <laughs> I feel like I'm really going off on a limb. At this point, let me put this out provisionally, tentatively, okay? It seems to me what Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov is about is the passing of an old order. All of these Western influences are coming in and um, there are already enough problems in old mother Russia. We know that from Fyodor's marriages to his two wives. He abandons his kids, he neglects them, you know, that's not a new order, that's an old order. But the one thing we can say about Fyodor that cannot be said about Muniz, and, and Mary nailed it, I think, last week when she said um, that Musov is more hollow, he's the more shallow of the two characters, he really is. And she said, but I'd like to kill Fyodor. <laughs> because he's so, he's, you know, he's a despicable character. But one of the things that can be said for him is that he knows his sins, he admits them everywhere, doesn't stop him from committing them, but he's far more honest than almost anybody in the book because he lives in his passions and his passions are real. You can say what you want about his passions, they're disordered, he's depraved, he, you know, he does vile things, but his passions are real, they're a part of him. What happens with these new ideas come in is that they're all intellectual and they're taking hold of people's minds and forming their minds at the expense of their hearts. Does Musov feel? Is he capable of loving or feeling anything? Smirjikov, um, Rakitin, is in his head. All of these modern are intellectuals living in their heads at the expense of their heart. Remember what C.S. Lewis's argument was in Abolition of Man. One of the great needs of the modern age is to recover our hearts to learn how to feel what we should the right way. So we're watching an old order pass. And here's part of the beauty. Um, we're watching the family be destroyed. Um, when we put the family together as we move through the book, we're going to find three brothers and every one of them acknowledges their tie. Every one of them says, I'm like my dad. They're all called sensualists, every one of them. Dimitri says he's a a bug. What's the? But there's a. There's another generic, huh? Insect. Insect. Thanks. Calls himself an insect, spider. He's a bug. Every one of them acknowledges his connection. Every one of them is a sensualist. They all have Fyodor blood, or I mean, does or Karamazov blood. Every one of them, and yet every one of them is different. Alyosha is very gentle, very quiet. Dimitri's a warrior. Remember the platonic soul, the intellect, the spirited, the appetites? 
the intellect is the um, legislative, it, it directs. The spiritedness is the love of noble things. The appetites is the love of low things. Theodore is driven by his appetites. Sex and money has him. Dimitri's a soldier, he's a warrior. He's ready to fight for honor everywhere. He's like that middle aspect. He's ready to get angry all the time. Um, Ivan, this is really interesting because it, um, it's as if Dostoevsky's taking on the platonic soul. Ivan's directed by his intellect and he's almost inhuman. He's so impersonal. So what we're seeing in Russia is a disordered soul. You can't, you can't go to any faculty and find an order. The closest you get is um, Zasimov. And it's because of his love of Christ that he can order his soul, that he has a good mind. He, he says, you will not be able to love well if you don't love the truth. So he's affirming the mind, the intellect has to know the truth. How can you love if you don't know what the truth is? So indirectly he's affirming the platonic order, the intellect, the spiritedness, the appetites. So we're watching an old order pass and we're watching a family be destroyed. And um, we're watching a parent grow up sort of idolizing his old era, Alyosha, and loving Ivan, but we don't see how disordered they are until we start moving towards the murder, and then we see failures everywhere. And Dimitri and Ivan, um, even, even Alyosha is gonna feel like um, he's, in, he's implicated in a betrayal, but we'll wait on that. But anyway, I, I would suggest right now, and part of the beauty of that is this, um, Dostoevsky renders the world as it is. He's not forcing characters to follow an ideology of his own. He's letting characters speak on his own. So he's letting the world speak itself. And yet, it's going to lead somewhere. So he drops us into mystery. He drops us into mystery. Where is it going to go? Um, he's not taking us towards a utopian world. He doesn't say, this is going to be a better world. And in that sense, um, Brothers deserves comparisons with Shakespeare and Dante. Because remember, take, take any one of Shakespeare's tragedies. Every one of Shakespeare's tragedies ends with people dying. We don't know what's going to follow. Shakespeare's not telling us. But we, what we do know is every injustice has been answered. It's been resolved. So um, Dostoevsky's like that. He's not trying to force us to a way of seeing the world or wishing the world would be this way or that way. Because, by the way, Americans are very much that way. We are very controlling people. We are really, I mean, we're far more socialistic already than we know. We want peace, we want security, we want comfort, we want to be able to predict things. Huh? Happiness. Well, but happiness bases, and for us, is based on comfort and security and, you know, things predictable. So we are an extremely controlling people. We want things to end up this way. Dostoevsky's dropped us in a mystery where things are not that way. And we have, to, we have to say, is he teaching us something about our faith? And more importantly, as we go through the characters, are we like these people? And one of the things we talked about last week, remember, was Fyodor is a despicable character. But it's only by means of him that we can see Miosov as worse. Because does any, and he, um, Fyodor is critical of the priests, the monks. Miosov, he's critical of uh, his son, Dmitri. 
He says, you've dishonored. He is good enough to say, Grushenko's a noble woman. He is good enough to say of, of Lizaveta, when the men are drunk and they go by her and say, she's an animal. Fyodor's the only one who says she's not an animal. She's a human being. She's a woman. So even though he's despicable, he's rooted in his passions. There's something, he's still rooted in his own nature. The ideologues are in their heads trying to create a world of their own. And I'm trusting you're all going to see the parallel right now because if you look at what's going on in America right now, we're on a threshold between two worlds. We're looking back, we were there with Melville. We were there with Melville, you saw it. We're even, I'm going to argue, we're even more there with Dostoevsky. Because the, the two governing powers of our world are technology and science. And it's on the basis of those, not a morality or a, or a Christian faith, that we will create a post-human world. I've been quoting that book now for weeks. That we can change our nature, we can change our sex, we can do whatever we want because we have available to us powers of technology and science. So the world that we're looking at in Dostoevsky is in so many ways similar to our own. Let me stop. I want to turn to the book. Any questions? Yeah, Connie, go. Yeah. Oh, we're going to go there. We're going. We're going to start there. Thanks for getting me there. Let's go to the book. When we left off last time, we um, remember the term manipian satire. That um, Fyodor Dostoevsky functions as um, a mirror because he's so willing to admit to not cover up the fact that he's a fool he's not afraid of anything we have so many other people who are afraid at a time of great change remember this has been a principle we want to look at it. at a time of great change in every civilization every great writer has to go to a metaphysical understanding. What, what underlies there? What, what do we have in common? Shakespeare lived at that time. Dostoevsky is living at that If the world is changing, how do you know what to say? What's proper? If respectability is being destroyed, by what rules do you live anymore? Right? Fyodor's a buffoon, he says. I mean, he makes clear. He doesn't know what to say. He's saying stupid things all the time. Miyasov would never say those things because he lives by proprieties. Um, it's almost in the sense he has no soul. But So remember this um, manipian element, this satiric element. And in, in, just to reinforce it before we look at that scene, one second, Connie. Um, I suggested that the whole op opening is manipian. It's a satire. He, Dostoevsky has put um, Fyodor and Musev together so that he can show what's wrong with both of them deeply. Fyodor shows how shallow Musev is and Musev shows how stupid Fyodor is. And it's only, it's only because of um, Zosimov that we can see that there's something greater than the two of them. Zosimov says to Fyodor, stop lying, you don't have to be a fool, do these things. Um, and he actually kneels down and bows down to Dmitri because he sees Dmitri's in danger. 
he sees that Dimitri is a noble-souled individual and it's like he's blessing him because he knows he's going to face a hard time. But here, to pick up that satiric element, if you missed it before, did you notice the titles? A very, a nice little family, a, sem a seminarian careerist, Stinking Lizaveta, Confessions in Ver those are like soap opera type titles off of television. Um, confessions in verse, confessions in anecdotes, in a guitar, um, Smirjagov with a guitar. It's always interesting to talk. All of those are satiric. Nice little family. Can anything be more ironic than this is a nice little family? I mean, that's what we say with family gatherings when, because lots of us have family gatherings when we know that there are ruptures in our family, there are problems, there are struggles, there are crosses. Um, but to all appearances, it's a nice little family. Dostoevsky, he's uncovering all of that. He's showing us that things are not as they appear. So one of the questions we have to ask along the, the t lines that this is a t detective novel, who killed Fyodor, but what's real? Remember the opening lines of Hamlet? Who's there? Who's there? Who is Ivan? Ivan. Who's Alyosha? Who's Dimitri? Who are these people? Um, are they who they seem to be in appearances to other people around them? Or is the narrator showing us aspects of them that other people don't see? Here, let's go to the church-state thing. I want to, um, Connie, I'm going um, to just summarize this. But, um, so Yvonne, thanks Doc. Yvonne makes the argument that unless the church absorbs the state, that um, punishments will never serve, that they're insufficient to convert a criminal. Is that clear? And there are lots of people who hold that today. Sending a person to prison is not going to do any good. Putting them Because lots of prisoners are going to go in and say, I'm going to go out and do that again. But punishments don't serve. The monks take the opposite position, and, um, or um, they actually take the same position, but for other reasons. Ivan believes that man's not good, and unless people live by the fiction of God, they'd kill each other. So he's a modern atheist, he's intellectual, but he still believes that unless people have a fiction great enough to believe in, like the church, punishments won't correct them. Um, Miyasov says that's horror, that that's not true, that it's only when the, the, um, the state absorbs the church that um, punishments will serve. Now I want to go to a one page to look at to get to Connie's question and turn it over to you guys. On page 65, it's... it's um, the two leading paragraphs is how, how is that, may I ask, um, Yusuf acquired. Here's how it is, the elder began, and then he, he goes into this. Zosimov says, if anything protects the society, even in our time, and even reforms the criminal himself and transforms him into a different person, again, it is Christ's law alone, which manifests itself in the acknowledgement of one's own conscience. Now, all the enlightening people say that's old-fashioned, it's superstitious, it's not true. Okay? Um, 
so one side of it is um, Zosimoth saying it's only when the church comes in and people's souls are converted that the criminal will actually undergo a conversion. Okay. Next page, halfway through. I think we're one page off, so you guys are just going to have to search for these. But anyway, I've got on, on mind 65, and I gave you the lead-in paragraph. How is that? And here it is how it is. Um, it's awesome again. Halfway down the paragraph. But the church, like a mother tender and loving, withholds from act of punishment, for even without her punishment, the wrongdoer is already too painfully punished by the state court, and at least someone should pity him. And it withholds above all cause the judgment of the church is the only judgment that um, contains that truth. For that reason, it cannot essentially and morally be combined with any other judgment, even in a temporary compromise. Here it is not possible to strike any bargains. Uh, pay attention closely here. The foreign criminal, they say, rarely represents, repents, for even the modern theories themselves confirm in him the idea that his crime is not a crime, but only a rebellion against an unjust oppressive force. Society cuts him off from itself, go down a few lines, thus all of this goes on without the least compassion of the church, where in many cases there is already no more churches at all. What remains are just church men and splendid church buildings, while the churches themselves have long been, stri been striving to pass from the lower species, the church, to a higher species, the state, in order to disappear into it completely. By the way, you already, the numbers of people leaving the church are increasing, the numbers of nodes in our age is increasing. What he's describing is a situation much like our own. And therefore the criminal is not conscious of himself as a member of the church and excommunication. He sits in despair. Oh, hold on, hold on to that line. He says, um, the church, um, they're waiting for it to pass from the lower species, the church, to a higher species, the state, in order to disappear and do it completely. So it seems to be at least in Lutheran lands and in Rome. It's already a thousand years since the state was proclaimed in place of the church. Therefore, the criminal is not conscious of himself as a member of the church and excommunication. He sits in despair. So, um, answer Connie's question. Um, what is, let's be clear, what is awesome of arguing right now? And what's his understanding of Luther and of Rome, Catholicism? I think it's pretty close to Dostoevsky's. And it's going to be close to Ivan's um, in uh, The Grand Inquisitor, which is one of the most important chapters in the book. You all be sure to read that because it, it picks up this state church thing with Christ actually present. So what's Zosima's argument? What's he saying? Can anybody just restate it in simple terms? He doesn't view the church in Lutheran lands or even increasingly in Rome. You might be wrong about that one. That um, it's more instrumental, not a question of truth. Explain by what you mean by instrumental, Chuck. Uh, well, they, they, they follow the forms. The church is, is necessary for the regulation of society and so forth. But the sacraments are absent. Though the, the life has gone out of it. Yeah. It's it's, an, it's a, one more instrument. Uh, for either the reform or the managing of society take Yeah, it just deals with the externals of a person. It doesn't change his spiritual interior. So he's left unconverted. And he thinks that's the problem with Luther and Catholicism. So his understanding 
here, as um, Zosima presents it, is that Catholicism for centuries um, has taken the place of the church. I mean, that's why it started with that long list of struggles between church and state. Um, is everybody clear on that? Musiv says, that's a horror. That's ultramontanism. It's the, it's the Catholic Church um, becoming the state at the expense of the church. Um, and wait, what, what's that? Miosov wants the state to control because he does, he's not a religious man. He believes it's only when the state controls things and the church is subordinate to it that, that they can get control of criminals. Sorry, Chuck, go ahead. I think Miosov is, Dostoevsky's really making Miosov out to be a fool. He's missing Ivan's point, right? Go ahead. He's missing Ivan's point. He's taking it seriously. Ivan's not religious. Ivan's not ultra-monthalist either. Right. He's just got this very cynical view as of the church as an instrument. It carries the argument to a logical extreme. Yeah. And I kind of hinted that when I say, was he joking when he did this? Yeah. He wasn't honest when he did it. Yeah. And, well, he, I mean, in his own mind, intellectually is, but... But there's a, mal there's a modern intellectual rationalism to him. He's not, he's an atheist. And Here, let me go to this question. Connie, do you have a question at this point? What the struggle, I mean, right now there's no agreement that these men are arguing. So. What? Was the church not the head of everything at some point? In Russia? Or just in the world? Yeah, I mean, we saw the struggle that, that it, I mean, the struggles in the Middle Ages went back and forth, you know, with, with emperors, um, in, or what's the, the cut, the, boy, the investiture, investing powers of the clergy and bishops, or the Pope investing or crowning an emperor, you know, so the Middle Ages was a, a time of, you know, violent conflict between the two powers. I mean, we saw in Dante's that the two parties were killing each other, um, or three parties. Um, so we're here, let me, because there's no resolution at this point. The men are arguing, so we can't answer the question. But what is interesting is that we can say, Zosimov understands Lutheran to be wrong, because Luther made a, an accommodation to the secular world. Um, remember that, um, God, Luther and Calvin. Calvin wanted to make a Christian society, a theocracy. That's what we've got in Hawthorne. He wanted a theocracy. So Zosim is critical of Luther because he made that compromise. And he's, he's critical of Rome because he sees Rome as doing the same thing. So that's their understanding of Rome. I'm trusting that everybody knows that it's more complicated than that. But Dostoevsky's showing us characters who are taking the position. And notice this. Go to Jane Austen, go to Dickens, go to Trollope, go to um, Eliot, um, George Eliot, go wherever you want. When's the last time you ever began to open a book and, find, and found people talking about state church matters, about issues of theology or sin? Or, I mean, this book opens with men engaging in the hardest kinds of questions possible. So we don't get a resolution, but here's where I want to go. So he's, he's engaging us in a, in, a, in a dialectic. I don't agree with the positions, you know, for reasons you already know, but here, here's where I want to go. What do we do with this? Um, 
Misev is recounting his exchange with an intellectual in Paris talking about socialist socialism this is the last page just before chapter 6 the last paragraph before chapter 6 chapter 6 he was more polite than Frank precisely as a Frenchman can be polite the more so because he viewed me as a foreigner but I well understood him the topic was socialist revolutionaries who by then by the way were being persecuted admitting the main essence of the conversation I shall um, I shall quote only one most curious remark we are not, in fact, afraid of all these socialists, anarchists, atheists, revolutionaries, he said. We keep an eye on them. He goes on, go down. They are the ones we are most afraid of. It's the Christians who are socialists who are the most dangerous. And watch this. They are the ones we are most afraid of. They are a terrible people. A socialist Christian is more dangerous than a socialist atheist. His words struck me even then, but now, here, gentlemen, I somehow suddenly recall. That is... Um, Dimitri arrives and we don't get a conclusion. So why does Dostoevsky do that? In fact, let me put it to you. Do you, do you all understand what he just did? He dropped a bomb on us. He ends this saying, um, Christian socialists are, because lots of people say Christian socialists show how much more accommodating they are. They're nicer. I mean, they're more truly Christian. And here we get a comment saying, Christian socialists are the most, they're more dangerous than all, the atheists, the agnostics, the socialists, and then it drops, and Dimitri arrives. I mean, that to me is just a piece of brilliance. Why did Dostoevsky do that? And let me put the question to you. How would any of you answer that, that guy? So you're out in the world now, you're coming out of seas, and you're inviting friends or something, and you're, de you're dealing with atheists or socialists or modern progressives who who advocate trans or gender or you know whatever and socialism or and you have this bomb dropped on you this is a dialectic we're supposed to engage just asking who he was doing how do you guys answer that why would this guy say a Christian socialist is more dangerous than all the other revolutionary groups I would say he's right hmm? I would say he's right why well one thing one obvious thing is that the Christianity is a bullard against all the horrors of socialism and if the Christians become socialists, who is left to defend the individual, the dignity of the individual? Can you flesh that out? I don't know that, I'm, I, absolutely, yeah. So, it's a bulwark for what? And why would socialism the be... The of the individual and his own inherent dignity over against the, uh, the inter class interests, group interests. Or state interests. Or, of course. Yeah. It takes state authority to get those things done. Because people don't naturally do them, so you have to violent. Yeah. Can anybody add anything? Anne, you look. I've just been thinking, I have a friend who posts things from the Christian left, <laughs> and it honestly really evoked this for me. Sure, should, because it's true. I mean, the Christian left will be there. Mary, did you have something? Let me put it this way. Sorry, answer this. Can you, given what Chuck said, can you be a Christian truly and a socialist? No. Why? Opposing, opposing ideas. Explain it. Flush it out. Because the Christian is free, free will. The socialist 
is everything is decided for you, uh, determined for you, and this is by whom? By someone. By the state. By the state. The state. And so you can't, you can't be that. But I would see that they would fight for it. And uh, what would you say? Lie to people, they would believe you. What's the word? Deceive? You deceive somebody. Oh, well, this must be the. I'm Christian, so this must be the Christian way. And so, and then you appease a socialist by saying, well, we'll teach it as Christian. To me, it's all a lie, it's all the demon, the father of lies. They're, They're not dishonest, they're just. Yeah. Never, never underestimate the ability of someone to hold two contradictory ideas yeah. at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why I think they would fight to the death for either one. That that they are Christian, but they're not. And they're I think that's the major point, that they're more dangerous because as Christians they're more likely to give their lives and fight, yeah. give everything for that. When what they're, what they're doing, if you looked at what they're doing, it's actually intellectually incoherent because the two things can't match up for the reasons Chuck and Mary have given. In a, in a socialistic world, there's no opposition. There's no opposition party. The, the, there's no free press. The state controls everything. So there's no freedom of speech. There's no opposition party. There's, um, there's a compromised individual will you give up everything for the sake of here's America, security, comfort, predictability, you know, self-preservation. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, socialism tries to create heaven on earth, which yeah. is not possible in a Christian worldview. Yeah. We live in a fallen world. Yeah. The socialists deny that. Yeah. So or Connie, does that help you? I mean, at this point there's no resolution in the chapter. But the way Dostoevsky has presented it um, fleshes out the problem so that we can see exactly what the issue is. So there shouldn't be any, anybody leaving here today who's confused. Go back and read this because it's setting out exactly what the conflict is. The beauty of this thing is the way he ends it, the, the Christian um, socialism is more. But I want to go back to this. I love this passage. When Zosimov is describing the church taking over everything because it's only when you have the power of excommunication that you can touch a person's soul. And it's only when you do that that somebody, you'll have the power to get that guy to convert. I don't believe that either because once again you're using coercion. But here, here's what he says. The, this is on 65. I read it before. The foreign criminal, they say, rarely repents, for even the modern theories themselves confirm in him the idea that his crime is not a crime, but only a rebellion against an unjust oppressive force. Somebody flesh that out. Anne, go ahead. That's our world now. Somebody commits a crime, it's because of the way they've been mistreated, because they for generations have been cheated. And that, you know, there's no taking responsibility for their own actions. The source of that, please? Marx. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, that is so extraordinary. He, he doesn't point out, but take that line. The idea that his crime is not a crime, but only a rebellion against, that is, that line says that we're not going to make any, pre, we're not going to make any progress 
towards justice unless we're in the middle of violence and a revolution. And this was written when? Well, what was that, 18... 18, yeah, 18... And what that said is, so today... Yeah, is everybody following? But, um... A crime, but only rebellion against... It's only when people are rebelling that they're healthy. I want, everybody's got to understand this. Because most of the people coming through schools today are educated along Marxist lines. Judges, lawyers are coming out, turning out criminals because they say that violence is an indication that he's part of an ongoing revolution. But even if it's not, it seems to me it's, it's the core. It, it's necessary to be a socialist. You have to accept this idea that people are malleable, that the human spirit uh, can be affected by the environment conditions. Because if you don't believe that, socialism is not going to work. Because they have this article of faith that we can just change our institutions and our social arrangements and that people will fall in line and we'll have this utopia. Well, if you believe that, then you have to believe that people acting badly are because of the environment, not of any human uh, inherent evil or inherent flaws of yeah. nature. So one goes with the other. Is everybody following? I, I really want to underscore this because... It's not their character. Sorry? It's not their character. It's not... They're not personally responsible for something, right. I want everybody to just underscore this because this is, this is 1870, you know, 1860-70. That's the middle of the 19th century. We're in, what, the 21st century. He's saying, um, he's remarking then, because it's already, un it's underway in Europe. This is, our, socialism's already been, by the way, people are coming to America having experienced socialism in the 20th century. So they're coming here. Those socialisms were forming at, as this novel was written. But the principle here, the underscore is, there's something wrong with you if you're not in a revolution. The sign that you're a part of a utopian world is that everything you're doing is violent because you're opposing an unjust world. So today we've got people coming out of the schools, putting criminals out, releasing them, saying, these are the people who are our heroes because they're revolt. They're, they're actually proving us that the crimes they're committing are, are evidence that we live in an unjust world. They're a product of this unjust world. We've got to turn them out. So to pick up on Chuck's point and all of you, there is no individual responsibility. The state is responsible. It's only when we reconstruct the state and answer all these injustices that we'll have this heaven on earth. So nothing is the interim between now and then, whatever that then is, will be violent. Nothing but violent. Because it's a sign that what we're doing is right. We're part of a revolution. So there's no longer individual responsibility, there's no longer an immortal soul, there's no longer God. I mean, that's one of the... Is everybody clear? Okay. Here, quick, let's go on. Any questions about this? Connie, are you... Yes, no. Yes, no? <laughs> um, I'm going to just quickly covers, I'm going to just summarize some things and I want to go back to them because now that we're through the opening and all that's going on, I want to focus more on the book. But here, Dimitri comes to the meeting and he says, why is such a man alive? He and his father challenge each other. Um, Dimitri makes it clear that he, um, 
He's angry enough that he's willing to kill his father. He makes that clear. Um, in the next chapter, a, a, semin a seminarist, careerist. It's really interesting. Um, if we don't, get, we won't get time tonight. But next week, I want to go to that passage where, in that chapter, um, on page. 82, 83 in my book, um, Rakuten is describing Ivan's description of him. And, and I'll read it next time. But Ivan is saying, this is what you're going to do in your life. And it's a pretty faithful prediction of, or a character thumb sketch of, on Ivan's part of Rakuten. He says, you're going to go away, you're going to get educated, you'll take control of this business. This is what you'll do. You write essays and most of them will be liberal and atheistic. And it's a pretty exact description. So we've got, in fact, let me ask you, who are the people who belong to the old world that's passing? Who are the people who belong to a new world that's coming? Let's get it just out on the table here for a second. Hmm? Zos? Yeah, right. And by, and by the way, is that world going to come around or is it disappearing? The order, the, the institution of the, the monks, because most of the hierarchy, the priests, are critical of confession. They're these monks giving sacraments because they're not priests. So we have a sense that the that order of that institution of the monks, because they give confessions and they do all these other things and it causes resentments and that institution is fading. And it's interesting because as Dostoevsky presents it, there's something more personable in what they're doing than what the priests do in their official character. So just once again, he's showing attention here in what's going on in, in the established class, the priests and the monks. But Zosima belongs to that old, who else, old and new? Actually, Dimitri, old. Huh? Dimitri, old. Old, why, quick? Because he can't help himself, he's got this, this core of honor. <laughs> yes. This is by a sort Yeah, very passionate, man of honor, belongs to that old world. Who else? The, the servants. Huh? Um, Gregory yeah, and his wife. Greg, right. Yeah. yeah. Gregory especially because his wife wanted to leave and he wouldn't. That's a sense of loyalty. He's not, he's not, even though he's a, if a despicable man, Gregory will not leave that man. The sense of loyalty is too great. Gregory belongs to that world. Smerdjikov is new world. Smerdjikov, why Chuck? He's a, first off, he's a, <laughs> That's the new world. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's definitely a sociopath. He's, yeah. He has no, um, no social, Loyal. no human connection. Affection. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Affection. I mean, he lacks a heart. He just he doesn't feel, um, or if he does, it's in a minimal way that, that's driven by a intellect that's. So clearly, Smirnikov. Sorry. Not in Paris, it was Moscow. He went to Moscow to become a chef. A chef, and it he, he came back dressed up and tidied and neat and fastidious. And Smirnikov clearly quick. We've got to go. Who? Let's just get some of the major characters, huh? What about Kushinda? Oh. Go ahead. Old? I don't know. I've only seen a little bit of her so far, but you're talking about Grushenka. Well, we're, go ahead. Can you? Where old, where new? I mean, 
If you see her... I think old, but... I, Go I ahead, why? see more of her. Because she also it seems to be attached to her passions and her whims and um, not led by some intellectual idea or whatever. Whereas Katerina, I feel, is perhaps new. I, I'm not sure either. I'd put oh, them... I Go ahead. Go. Does have, she has noble sentiments that, you know... Both of them are noble because both of them are very proud. Dmitri, Katrina, Krushenka are all, I mean, they're, the, 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 what stands out about all of those is they're so proud, they're so noble in their, in their sort of, <laughs> their passions, I mean, however you want to, go ahead, you were going to say something. I was just going to say that I think it's the opposite because I think Grushenka um, is more about herself. I don't think she cares really. Um, she's trying to figure out what is going to be best for her. While Katrina is really, um, you know, trying to trying to give back for this favor that she received from him, and she's trying to protect him and try to keep him in the right path or something. Let me put a difference. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, so it seems so that Katerina is more in love with an idea, not the reality yeah. of things. So she's more intellectual after all. You know, um, not attached to the the real world. Yeah. As you know, fallen and venal <laughs> as she is. Yeah. Anybody want to add anything? I would think the two youngest are the youngest. Go ahead, how? The youngest is very kind of. It thinks he's truly quiet, he's can you speak up, see? He sees things through, he, he sees things, he observes, but he's not the dominant Russian culture of, of strength and, and power. You're talking about Ivan? Uh, and in, uh, Alyosha? Yeah. yeah. Let me offer this and I'm going to stop because I, I, there are so many passages that I wanted to read and we didn't, but I'm, we're going we're to start moving through the book pretty quickly. Let me just offer a couple of thoughts here. I would put Katrina and Katerina and um, Drushenka in the old because they're both, and there can be disagreements here, just um, because they're both, they're both driven by their passions and the fact that they're self-centered isn't a reason in front of the other. There's no more self-centered person in the book than Fyodor because it seems to me when you live in your passions and you're driven by them, you're centered on yourself always. You're just, there's no detachment in what you do. Everything you do is for yourself. And I couldn't agree more that Katerina wants to see her as loving in a sacrificial way. But it's so clear when you read what she's doing is she's in love with her idea of herself doing that. She doesn't love Dimitri. She loves the idea that he bowed down to her and she would bow down to him and abase herself before him. And so it's interesting to watch these characters love an idea of their own, not an actual person. But it seems to me one of the things you can say about all of those characters is because they're rooted in their passions anyway, they're still rooted in something in their nature. However, they're fallen, you know, all of them, the whole Karamazov lot. But, but there are these divisions, and I agree that there's something in Katerina that um, she belongs to that gentle class and with all of its contradictions. Her father was a commander and um, who was in debt and she had to sell herself to, you know, to get money and it puts her in that predicament with Dimitri. And, um, here, I wanted to go, um, sorry, one more thing. Um, 
So we've got, who are we missing anybody here? Those are the major characters. So, oh, here, Alyosha, here. So, it's really interesting, it's really interesting, and I, this is getting ahead of us, and I'm actually sorry, I shouldn't do this right now, but I'm gonna do it, because um, we're talking about old and new. We're watching a family, Dostoevsky goes into a family at a time when the divisions are lacerating, they're tearing everywhere. And we're, we're watching the emphases work its way out in family separations. The Karamazas admit they're all sensuous, they're all connected to Theodore. But apart, separated from that, they couldn't be more different. Ivan's couldn't be more different. From Dimitri's a fighter, a warrior, Ivan's an intellectual, he's a modern. Alyosha is really interesting. He comes into this world at a time when the institution of the elders is passing. It's going. So he stands on the verge. This is really important. Alyosha stands on the verge of looking back to this ancient world because he loves Zosima dearly. It's like a father to him. He, in fact, his crisis, he's going to face his crisis shortly because of his love of him and everything that happens surrounding his death. But he loves him. But he doesn't have the institution to stand on. He's not going to be a priest. And Zosima says to him, leave the monastery. Go out into the world because your place is there. Now think about Dostoevsky here saying to what is the most religious person in the book after Zosima, get out of here, get out of the monastery, go out into the world. And immediately after that, um, he gets this love letter from Lisi, and they're engaged. I don't want to go there because, I don't want to go there yet, but think about that with Alyosha. He's not like any other person. He goes, he, his attachment to Zosima links him to an old Russia. But he's being encouraged to do something that is going to require a very different mode of living that faith. He can't go back to that world. He can't do what Ivan's doing. He can't do what Dmitri's doing. His faith drives him. But he's going to have to live in a way that he has no example for. So in terms of old and new, he, he's in one sense the, the newest thing. And it's, it's leaving me with a question. If this book is meant to be a a work of a dialectic and we look at Alyosha as the hero who emerges as the hero. Dimitri is the one, he's the skeleton, he holds the skeleton together, right? The whole plot revolves around him up until the murder. Alyosha holds it together too. The book is going to end with him. What is Dostoevsky saying about the way in which we're to face this unknown that we don't know about what's going to happen in Russia? Now, just to pick up this, and then we're going to stop. Um, I suggested earlier that one of the most important ways to read this book is as a detective story. Sorry. Holy cow. Holy cow, I can't. I thought I put it here, I asked all these questions. Is it? Oh, yeah, 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 thanks. Thank you, Connie. It's getting worse, I'm so glad you guys are here. Here, um, a detective story, okay? What's gonna happen between Dimitri and um, Theodore? 
What's going to happen? Demetrius already threatened him with his life. It's at the bottom of page two. Why all this fuss about money at the beginning? Because almost every conflict centers on money. Theodore wants money, he gets it, he spends it. Dimitri gets money, he wastes it. Um, he gives Katrin, Katerina money, um, expecting, or, and both of them expecting that she'll give sex in return. He gives it to her freely, walks away. She feels indebted to him. He feels like he's got control over her. He goes back, she pays him off, or he, 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 she pays him off. And then at one point she gives him 3,000 rubles to give to his sister and he takes it and spends it on this orgy with Grushenka. Why, why is all this money so important? Hold on to that. Because it's a big thing in the beginning. So don't overlook obvious facts, the money. Repeatedly, um, we're told that Smirjikov knows everything. He knows everything about Grushenka, he knows everything about Rakuten. He knows about the money. He knows where Fyodor keeps the money. He knows that Fyodor told his son Ivan to go to this town called Shemashnya. Why, why is that important? Because it comes up several times. Um, Grushinka and Katrina fight with each other. Right? When I'll, we'll pick up there next week. Dmitri goes to, or Alyosha goes there to meet Katrina because she wanted to meet him. She wanted to learn what Dimitri's response to her was. When Alyosha tells her, she's confirmed in her belief that she can save Dimitri, that she will love him and he will love her. Grushenka's art, the two of them are together. Um, uh, Alyosha doesn't know that Grushenka's behind the curtain. She overhears everything. And she brings her, or Katrina, Katerina brings her out. And they seem the closest friends. And Katerina says, we love each other. She's an angel. She's just told me she has this lover that she's going to go to. She thinks she thinks that she's free now to love Alyosha. But um, Grushenka is going to present her hand to her. Katerina's going to kiss it. Is it wait? Have I got that right? Yeah, that's right. Wait, did I get that right? You get it. And then um, Katerina is going to present her hand to Grushenka. Grushenka is going to take it, and just before she's ready to kiss it, she puts it down. Which is, a, to the pride of these women, it's just, it's, I mean, it, if there's a parody in the book, it's sad to watch, but, and it leaves Katerina speechless, just horrified, because she's been so insulted. What are the two women going to do? They're rivals to each other now. Who's Dimitri going to end up with? What I'm trying to do is to multiply, because everything Dostoevsky is doing is in the mode of a detective story. Where is it? How do they all relate? What's going on? Um, Grushenka seems to be using Rakuten. There's a related. She sends him on these errands. In the chapter in which we're introduced to Smerdyakov, we learn that Grigory raised him. And the chapters, um, as, as the narrator presents it, it's described in terms of Balaam's ass. Who's Balaam in that exchange? Who's Balaam and who's the ass? Because remember in that scene, Smerdyakov has come back educated. Grigory is very loyal in his faith, blindly loyal. He's absolutely devoted Christian. Smirjikov takes his belief, I'm, we'll go over it because I want to look at that close. Smirjikov takes his belief and crushes it, just leaves Grigory speechless. He, he can't use his powers of reason to answer him. So that old world, I mean it's an image of 
how helpless we are if we're not able to answer these intellectuals. He's powerless. Who's Balaam and who's the ass? I'm asking a Now relate it to the story between this this scene involving Smirjukov and Gregory. Who's Balaam and who's the ass? Gregory is the Gregory is the uh, is Balaam and Smirjukov the ass. Explain it. Well, I don't know the story, but based on what she said, because. I think that that situation was that Gregory uh, was trying to Christianize him. Right. Well, the position he would take would be Christian, but Smirnikov's arguing against him, yeah. And then he's like, you know, he, he, he asks him a question about, I don't remember what it was, but a question that puts his faith in, like, he didn't know what to answer, so, you know. We've got to straighten this out. In this scene, who's Balaam and who's the ass? Balaam, Balaam was a false prophet. He was a false prophet. Balaam uh, responds to the ass with violence, beating And in the, in the episode, you know, Smirnikov is questioning faith. He's questioning... Questioning, but he's... Yeah, he's, he's, he's proposing that... He's beating him that he up. Can, uh, he can, uh, he's crushing him. And then plead for forgiveness from the Lord. And Smirnikov is... is, is uh, uh, Gregory is, is beside himself. Right. He just responds with, with sheer anger. Who would you who would be Balaam according to that, Michael? And who would be the ass? So Smirnikov is the ass and Balaam is Smirnikov. Or Smirnikov's the that was Yeah. Why? Because um right, Jacob was kind of beating Gregory over the head with all of these um, False yes. explanations. Christianity, and finally, Gregory is driven into a position where he has to speak truth, right? Or, I don't remember which scene we were talking about, so. But, well, you're doing well. Which scene is that? What chapter is there, there, yeah, there, 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 Smirjakov is trying to show Grigory that his faith is ridiculous. He just beats him up. He says that, um, how does he, he says, if I were a man of faith, I could move mountains. Oh, that's right. And you, you're not going to find two people who are going to be able to move mountains. So that means your faith is unreal, number one. And then he says, um, besides, if, um, and, and you know that Islam was taking over Europe pretty much up until that time, so it's an issue, and it'll be an issue in the, in the Grand Inquisitor too. Um, he says, if I was forced to renounce my faith for the sake of my life, I'd do it. And you know that that, that was the great battle in Islam when Islam was taking over the country because they would, for no reason at all, they just conquered these, these, her, these uh, the the non-believers and force them to convert or they die. And by the way, the deaths were brutal. They would dismember them, they would, I mean, they did horrible things. So either Christians would renounce their faith or they would get, um, 
or, or they would be killed, tortured. So Balaam's, or I mean, Smirnikov is saying, so if, if I was presented with this choice of whether renouncing my faith or dying, I would renounce my faith. Because if I renounce my faith, this is his argument, basically, I'm not going to do justice to it, but I'm, he's saying, if I renounce my faith, I'm no longer Christian. And if I'm no longer Christian, God will have no qualms. He, there's nothing to forgive. So he goes on using reason along. I want to go back to this because I want to see how you guys are going to answer that. These are his reasons. Grigor, who's unreflective, he's holding on to a blind faith. He has no part of this enlightenment world. This enlightenment world has taken him over. He can't use reason to answer this guy. He's devastated. And Spirzikov goes on along those lines, crushing this old man into speechlessness. And he's showing that his faith is worthless. Okay, so my question is, who's Balaam? Who's the ass? Um, and what is Dostoevsky showing us in this struggle between this man who's emerged in the modern world, Smirjikov, and all that he's done with this, the way he's using reason to engage a man of faith in what he does to him. How important is that for our time? When we come up against an intellectual, will we be capable of answering this person's arguments? So let me leave it there. But, um, is that, okay, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's book three, chapter six, page 132, it says Balak's ass is Smirnikov. Yeah, um, that says, he says, and Fyodor calls him, yeah. oh, ass. <laughs> so the is the this is chapter seven, a seminary. Is this the controversy? It's the other one. It's Smirchikov. It's chapter seven. I've got a seminary. Don't worry about the number. There's, it's, it's in both. It's in both. There's reference. The first line of chapter seven is balanced as it's But it starts in six. Wait, just so, yeah, I'm looking at chapter six, Smirchikov. Okay. And I'm, but I think that's, I think there's, a couple of, but um, we'll straighten that out next week. What I would like to do is just hold on to this notion that Dostoevsky is helping us to experience, that we're watching two worlds collide. Remember, that was the great theme for Melville, but we never, we never saw that conflict um, permeating everything. Here, we're seeing that conflict played out of every level of society and what it's doing. Um, so, okay, well, um, I'm trying to, I'm going to try to go a little bit faster now that we're through the beginning and sort of um, getting established. So, keep up with the reading. Um, enjoy it. Doug, did you turn it off?